of John chapter 10. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in, the looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. They saw and believed. He saw and believed, sorry. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he, had, after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Happy peace, everyone. I think what, I'm a third person who said that. It's nice to be here um, together celebrating Jesus' resurrection. Let me move this before I kick it over. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. And, and we're just going to be in John 20, so if you just keep that um, open... Um, and uh, why don't we cast our minds back to that first Easter Sunday. It's, 
imagine it's about 6.15 in the morning, and the pink sun is about to pierce the dark with its first rays. Verse 1, we see there Mary Magdalene, along with a few other women, hold up their skirts from the dirt, and they hold up their heads for the grief of seeing their master crucified just a few days ago. The stones, they, they crunch under their sandals, and the jars of spices that they'd prepared hang heavy in their hands as they walk. Fresh tears fill Mary's eyes. And as the first sunray clips the rise of a grassy bank just ahead, she prays that, do you know what, those guards outside the tomb will not be those same soldiers as who she saw on Friday evening piercing Jesus' side. She just couldn't look them in the eye. Mindful, she turns the final corner before the Arimathean family plot, whose eldest son, Joseph, had kindly given up his tomb in which to lay to bed Jesus' body. And with it, Mary thought, the hope of the world. Shielding her eyes from the, the morning sun, she looks up to see the tomb ahead, but there are, there are no soldiers. And the, 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 t- the stone has been rolled away. And she, she, we kind of think, oh, maybe you should be really excited at that point. She panics. And she just lets both jars of spices drop to the ground, smashing into pieces before turning on her heels, verse 2, and running to the upper room where she knew Simon Peter and John were staying. And as she arrives, panting from her sprint, she finds them, eyes closed, with their grief just painted over their sleep. And she shakes them awake. Peter, John, she cries in verse 2, they've taken the Lord. We don't know where they've taken him. Well, the two men jump up to their feet, verse 3, and unsure whether their grief is about to be compounded or whether to allow themselves a distant hope that those words spoken by their Lord about rising from the dead may just be the impossible joy that they have longed for since hearing Jesus breathe his last. So they run to the tomb. We find out here that John is the better runner. So he outruns Peter, verse 4. Mary, still holding up her skirt in order not to trip, follows behind as quickly as she can. And when John gets the tomb, verse 5, he just briefly looks in and he sees, folded on the stone ledge, the sullied and bloodied linen strips that were wrapped around Jesus on Friday evening. The the headcloth is lying there separately, but he dares not go in. When when Peter arrives, verse 6, Peter being Peter, if you've read any of the Gospels, doesn't waste any time. He just heads straight on into the tomb and he looks back at John with something between fear and amazement on his face. And without a word, does the slight rise of his smile gives John word of the dawning of a new world that they both know is about to turn their lives upside down. They saw, verse 9, and they believed. Well, of course, over the next uh, few weeks, many others too would have their lives turned upside down by this resurrection event, some of whom are in our passage today. Despair turned to hope, fear turned to peace and joy, and cynicism turned to worship. 
And we too, 2,000 years on, as we walk through three episodes in John 20 of Jesus turning people's lives upside down, I, I hope that we too will see, and indeed we will believe, that we also can have our lives turned the right way up because of what happened on that first Easter day around AD 33. So let's take a look at that first, um, first episode of three, where Mary's despair turned to hope. So first of all, despair turns to hope. In verse 10, we read Peter and John rather carelessly, I think, ran back home before Mary even had a chance to catch up and get there. So by the time that Mary gets to the tomb, verse 11, she is just as distressed as she was before. So she stands outside the tomb, weeping. Here is a woman who had invested everything in Jesus of Nazareth. Stuck in the claws of a life of prostitution, he was the first man who had ever looked into her eyes and saw someone of eternal value. Someone made in the image of his own father, but ravaged by the evil done to her and indeed the evil done by her. But when he had looked into her eyes for the first time and called her to follow him, she had, again, for the first time, an identity as a follower of this man who claimed to be the saviour of the world. He was not only her hope, but the hope of everyone whose hands he held, whose bodies he healed, and whose hearts he remade. This man had not only turned her life the right way round, but he had promised to prepare a place in his father's house for her, an eternal home of plenty, but for her, more importantly, an eternal place of safety. This is what Mary was grieving after seeing her Lord dead. And now his body had been taken, her grief had become despair, just sheer hopelessness for her life and anything beyond the grave. Have you ever felt like that? Verse 11, through tears, she looks into the tomb and she sees two people dressed in white. And perhaps for the tears, but most likely just for the sheer despair and numbness she was feeling, Mary becomes the first person in the Bible to witness an angelic presence without being completely overwhelmed. Have you, have you felt what that's like? When one more thing to add on to your pain and burden and confusion and numbness, it's kind of neither here nor there. You're already rock bottom. Woman, why are you crying? Woman here not being an offensive term in this culture. Indeed, it was the way that Jesus referred respectfully to his own mother. And a term that John has used throughout his gospel to highlight the importance of women throughout Jesus' ministry and in the early church. Woman, verse 13, why are you crying? She explains through the tears, they've taken my Lord away. What she didn't say was, with my Lord, they have also taken away my hope. I had nothing before him, and now I have nothing without him. Woman, she hears again, why are you crying? Only this time, the question sounded like the comfort of a close friend. Woman, why are you crying? 
Indeed, it was Jesus. Not immediately recognisable with his resurrection body, Mary assumed it was the gardener. So verse 15, she says, Sir, please, if you've you've carried him away, please tell me, I will go get him. But instead of sending her on her way, Jesus used one word. Do you read that? One word weighing heavy with eternal significance for this weeping woman. Just one word was all that it took. One word. Her name. Mary. Mary. No one said her name the way that he said it. Somehow in two syllables, Jesus communicated all that she needed to know in life. Mary, it's me. Mary, wipe away your tears. Mary, I died for your sins. Mary, I rose not for despair, but to give you hope that I always promised when I was with you. Mary, verse 17, I'm going to be with my father, who, because I am now risen from the dead, is now your father. My God, Mary, is now your God. Mary. Verse 18, Mary's despair had turned to hope. Not the kind of hope where she's vaguely hoping something to be true, but concrete hope as real as the person who has just said her name. Do you know that the risen Christ is still calling people by name today? Meredith, Steve, Ben, Kasia, Adam, Joe, everyone in this room, he is calling us by name. He knows your name. And because he knows your name, he knows your pain. He knows everything about your life, your joys, your hopes and your dreams, your despair, your depression, your fears. Mary. He knows about that relationship breakdown. He knows about your addiction. He knows about your hidden sins. He knows how unknown you feel. Mary. On Friday, we thought about Jesus' death on the cross. Tobes led us through a reflection um, on that, about how Jesus died for our sins in order to restore us to friendship with God the Father, to brotherhood to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you want to know how we know if it worked? He calls you by name. Not to condemnation, but to reconciliation. Not to judgment, but to salvation. Mary. And although, of course, he calls us to suffer for a little while in this world, here is Mary's hope. Indeed, here is your hope, which triumphs over despair. Jesus is risen. He knows, he cares, and he's promised to take you to his Father's home beyond this world. So despair turns to hope. Secondly, then, fear turns to peace and joy. That evening, if you look down at verse 19, you'll see that it is the the evening of that first Sunday 
Jesus' disciples have locked the doors of the room where they are staying, quote, for fear, for fear of the Jewish leaders. They're scared, right? These Jewish leaders have just killed Jesus and they are scared that they too are going to be killed as his followers. And we read that again, locked doors being important here, despite the locked doors, with a recognisable and yet transformed body, Jesus comes and he stands among them. And what is the first thing that Jesus says to his fearful disciples? Peace be with you. Peace. Again, the cross has worked. While there was once hostility between God and humanity, while our sins, past, present, future, once stood between us and our creator, look, the cross has worked and Christ is risen from the dead and he stands in front of you this morning with one word. Peace. And in that moment, verse 20, the disciples are overjoyed. They are not scared anymore. Before their eyes, Jesus Christ, Lord and Saviour, is risen from the dead. He is, after all, the way, the truth and the life. He is, after all, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What threat could the Jewish leaders now pose when their risen Jesus is on their side? Not only that, verse 21 and 22, Jesus gives them a new life mission to reach others with this incredible news that's going to turn their lives upside down as well. In verse 22, he gives them the Holy Spirit to empower that mission. And in a matter of weeks, the same Jewish leaders who those petrified disciples were scared of will be those who they're standing in front of testifying fearlessly that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. They have new lives. Their fear has turned to peace and to joy. What are you scared of? I assume you're scared of something. I certainly am. Now, it's not that Jesus spares us from anything or anyone who might do us harm. Indeed, most of these disciples we are reading of here ended up being martyred for their witness to Christ. But these guys were once scared of death. And yet here is their dead master who is now alive. What is left to be feared about death? And if death isn't to be feared, what else is? As Jesus says elsewhere, don't fear those who can only what? (laughs) How do you finish that sentence? Don't fear those who can only kill the body, he says. Or in other places, Paul writes, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Are you scared of dying? I I often find that I'm scared of dying. Do you have loved ones who have died in Christ? Children? Relatives? Friends? I do. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was raised so that we and they would be raised with him. Friends, family and children who died in Christ, they have this very moment what we are celebrating in advance this morning, what our hearts long for. They have right this very moment what 
will be ours forevermore. If death is defeated, who then, what then shall we fear? Our fear has turned to peace and to joy. And finally, cynicism turns to worship. Verse 24, we find out there that Thomas, famous Thomas, poor Thomas, famous Thomas wasn't in the room on that first Sunday evening. And to put it frankly, he just didn't believe. He didn't believe what his mates were chatting about, about Jesus being raised from the dead. Maybe you can relate. Are you someone who looks around at all these crazy people who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and you just think, how can people possibly believe that in the 21st century? Well, let me assure you that you're in good company because human beings in every century, every age across human history haven't believed that dead people rise from the dead. There's nothing modern about that belief. And this is why Thomas, in verse 25, famous words says, unless I see the marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Some of us can testify to that in the past. I will not become a Christian. Here you are, three years later. Evidence, says Thomas. I need evidence. I saw with my own eyes that he died. I saw the nails. I saw the spear in his sight, and you want, to believe, you want me to believe without seeing that that guy is now alive. That is crazy. He's cynical. Aren't we all too often like him? Aren't we all too often like Thomas when we read, up, when we read the Bible? While it's normal to have doubts and it's healthy to ask God questions about what we don't yet understand, All too often there's a cynical edge, isn't there? We have science now, don't you know, we say. Or for many it's become cool to so-called deconstruct our faith, as if challenging Jesus' clear words is a sign of growing up and maturing. Others simply enjoy a theological debate for the sake of it, much of which wants to innovate and change what clearly Jesus teaches. We are in very good company with Thomas. If we want to call him Doubting Thomas, then we've just got to label ourselves alongside him. Jesus has spent three years with this guy, being as clear as day. On the third day, Thomas, I'll rise again. And there's Thomas. I just can't believe this. Jesus has been clear, Thomas. Aren't we like Thomas? Aren't you like Thomas? And what does Jesus do? Well, he writes them off, doesn't he? Because that's fair. No, he doesn't. Look how kind he is. A week later, verse 26, in that same room, he appears again with the same words, peace be with you. And look how he deals with us as individuals. At that point, he turns directly to Thomas. And he says, verse 27, come, Thomas. Come and see. Come and put your fingers in my healing wounds. 
And again, we talk about God's grace and patience and kindness as if they're some kind of abstract idea. And yet here, in front of our eyes, we have a Jesus who is gently and kindly beckoning us in all of our doubts to him. Even the most cynical, he's beckoning us to come and see that I am real, I am true, and I am for you. And what is Thomas's response? Worship. He falls on his knees and he bows his head in front of the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, my Lord and my God. He whispers it in repentance and faith. God may not give us neat solutions to all of our questions, but by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he's given us something which calms our souls, an event which assures us that though answers may not be known to us, this is an all-knowing, all-powerful and all-good God who is for us and who can be trusted with what we don't understand. Our cynicism is put away in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our doubts become less significant and our hearts are turned and tuned to worship of the living God. Despair turns to hope. Fear turns to peace and joy. And cynicism turns to worship. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says that very few will experience what his first followers experienced here. But did you see yourself at the end of the narrative? I don't know if you saw, saw you. Have a look at verse 29. I think it was over the page. John writes this. Then Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. Blessed are those. Blessed are who? Blessed are us who have not seen with our own eyes and yet have believed. Have you believed? Have you seen in John's testimony the glory of the risen Lord Jesus, triumphant from the grave? John wrote these words. He wrote this whole gospel so that you would believe. Have a look at verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these words that I have written have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and so that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, would you allow the resurrection of Jesus to turn your despair in this world to hope? Will you look to him to find peace and joy amidst much fear and anxiety? Would you put aside cynicism in order to worship the risen Lord? For all who do, God is clear. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too have been raised to new life. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Shall we pray? Risen Lord Jesus, we are before you this morning 
proverbially bowed before you, our Lord and our God. We thank you so much that you did not turn away Thomas's worship, but you received it because it is your due. You are gloriously risen, and because you are raised, we too will be raised with you. Indeed, you have said that we are raised as we put our faith in you. Father, for hearts that have not yet done that, we pray that you would do that work in their hearts even now. And for those of us who have called ourselves Christians for years, Lord, show us something of your glory afresh this morning, that you may be worshipped and praised for the way that you deserve. And Father, give us a view of what is coming beyond the grave that would stir our hearts to serve you now in the way that is your due. Lord Jesus, we worship you for your glory and your namesake. Amen.